0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22. Verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we come to this moment. This moment of silence and reflection with so much stirring in our minds and our hearts. We come with questions, with fear, with anger. We come with joy and hope. We come with a lack of resources or an abundance of them. We come wondering if we can really believe these things, if it is really true what scriptures say about you, that you are a God of love and know us, care for us. And then we read a scripture like the one we just heard, which throws everything into confusion because it's so difficult to even articulate out loud. What we're really dealing with here is the question, can we trust you? Are you good? However we find ourselves in this moment, help us to see, Lord, that you know us, that you see us in all our complexity and our contradiction, and you are not only good, you are good specifically to each one of us, that you move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we invite you to teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be changed, our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be enlivened, that we would be redirected outward to be your hands and feet wherever we go. So we simply invite you to teach us now, Lord, for our good and your your glory. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't like sad movies. I, I really don't. I don't like slow dramas. I don't like sad movies. I like happy movies. I like um, summer blockbuster blow-up movies. Those are great. And so we have this funny tradition in our home where uh, Saturday night when I'm putting the finishing touches on the sermon... Uh, Florence watches very sad movies, and she'll invite a friend over, her cousin over. They'll have a glass of wine. And, and so they've dubbed it Saturday, where they watch sad movies on Saturday. And so everyone works out perfectly. Uh, they get to watch the movie they want. I don't feel like I've missed out at all, and it works out very well. Um, you know, part of my calling as a pastor is to walk through sadness with people. After this service, I'll leave, and I'll go and do a memorial service for someone who died way before their time. Um, but you don't have to be a pastor to know that this world has plenty of disappointment Uh, and then you come to a passage like this and you go I don't like this story I wish this story wasn't in the Bible if I was writing the Bible I would not put the story in there okay someone right now I know is saying and I probably agree with you this is part of what I hate about religion Uh, it has a text about child sacrifice Um, and we're supposed to listen to this um And then people take a text like this and interpret it and they say, I need to do whatever God says no matter what, even if it's evil and terrible and violent. And you begin to weaponize faith. Um, uh, We all hear stories of people that do terrible things in the name of religion and faith, or just dumb things. Saying things like, God told me to divorce my wife so I can go marry my co-worker. I mean, all sorts of things that people do because God told them to. Now, I'm looking at your face, and I hope you're you're hearing in my voice, there's a lot of tension here. So I'm going to do something that every movie producer and story writer and director would say you should never do, because you should hold the tension for as long as possible until you get to the climax and until you get to the resolution. I need to resolve a little of this for you and me right now, just so we can take some of the pressure out of it, so we can hear the rest of it, okay? Let me tell you this. This story is revolutionary for a reason you might never realize on face value. Um, It's not revolutionary because it has a story of almost near child sacrifice. That was actually rather common in the ancient eastern world uh, where this was written. So anybody in the early audience who reads this passage actually doesn't get choked up or stopped up at the part that you and I do. You know where they get choked up and stopped up? There's no surprise for them until you get to verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. And everyone would go, wait, what? I thought this is the way we placate an angry God. We throw someone into the volcano. We throw someone off the cliff. Someone has to die. And it's at 12 where God says, we are a different kind of people, and I'm a different kind of God, and we do not sacrifice children. Hold that as you listen to this. I am not like other gods, and my people are not like other people. I actually come in peace. Hold that as you listen to this. Now, this Abraham story, uh, as we're going through Genesis, this might actually be, we'll probably hit pause on Genesis as we begin to enter into Advent. Um, but this is what many observers and scholars would say is the climax of his life, um, Many literary scholars will say this is one of the best told stories in ancient literature. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher in 1843, wrote a book, Fear and Trembling, because of the effect that this story had on his life. It's infuriating, it's absorbing, it's riveting. You can't look away, and yet you don't wanna listen any longer. And so, you know, we're gonna figure it all out this morning in the next 20 minutes, sound good? Now, we won't figure it all out, but let's get to the core of it because let's see what this teaches us about faith, about knowing and trusting God, about following God. And here's what we see the perplexity of the test. We see Abraham's response to the test and the fulfillment of the test, okay? First, the perplexity of the test. Perplexity is defined by, uh, by Merriam-Webster as unable to clearly grasp. So if it's hard to clearly grasp what's going on in the call, don't worry, you are in good company. Because first, there's just the difficulty of the call, okay? As you hear the call in verse two, then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about, you realize it has resonance with all of the earlier callings of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God went to Abraham and said, leave your father and your homeland and go to the land I will show you. In both situations, there's a go. Go out. Leave the comfortable. Leave the, uh, leave the known. Leave where you're protected, where you're safe. Uh, and then there's a, where am I going? to the land I will show you. Go to the mountains that I will tell you about. And in both situations, there's a call to offer up. In Genesis 12, to leave Abram's father and homeland and property and security. In this part of Genesis 22, some might even say it's more devastating. On multiple levels. Because on one hand, it's the call to lose his firstborn son which we in a Western individualistic society see as tragic and sad and violent. It's all those things. And for them, it would have an entirely different layer and meaning. Because here in individualistic culture, when we want to say, who are you? We say, what kind of job do you have? What kind of house do you live in? What do you do for fun? What do you do? But in that culture and in many cultures around the world, we say, what's your family like? Tell me about your family. You're a part of a family. Abram is called to give up Part of his family, but not only part of his family. The firstborn. Now there is a story of Ishmael, which we've heard earlier. Ishmael has gone off. And so this is the only, and therefore the firstborn, all the rights go to this son. And in that culture, they had a rule called primogenitor, which means that the firstborn gets everything, almost everything. The firstborn carries on the family name, the firstborn carries on the family's resources and wealth and honor and dignity. So now you begin to feel the weight of not only the sadness of what's being called of him, but it's his entire future, it's his entire legacy. But it's also in the context of God had promised, I will bless you and through you all the nations will be blessed. Go outside and try to count all the stars and if even if you could, your descendants would outnumber them. Go to the beach and count all the sand and even if you could, your descendants would outnumber the grains of sand and I will do this through a son, I will do this through Isaac. And now God is saying, take Isaac and sacrifice him and end the story. It's a perplexing test. The command of God apparently contradicts the promise of God. So I want you to notice that sometimes faith can be very confusing. If you ever feel like you're in a part of your relationship with God and you don't know what's going on and it feels like a snow globe that's been shaken up and you're not sure which way to turn, just know that you're in good company. You are in good company. The command of God apparently contradicts the promise of God. And notice, for Abraham and Isaac, sometimes the God who is trying to save you actually feels like he's trying to kill you. There's a story of Elizabeth Elliot. This is one of the great stories of faith and uh, forgiveness and courage in the last hundred years. Uh, she had a husband named Jim Elliott who discerned a calling to go and to be good news to people in Papua New Guinea who misunderstood everything he had to do and say and ended up killing him. There's a whole story on this thing where um, the people that Jim Elliott was with actually had loaded weapons and could have used them if they wanted. Not, not a shot was fired. They would rather have their own lives taken than to take the lives of somebody else in this jungle in Papua New Guinea. And Elizabeth Elliot goes on to go back to that very people and befriends them and invites them into her home. Uh, It's a whole amazing story. You can read about it in a book and see it in a movie called Through Gates of Splendor. But there's a story where Elizabeth Elliot goes to a friend, a, a shepherd in Wales, England. And the shepherd... Uh, she was struck because the shepherd was taking the sheep and putting them in this vat of antiseptic that would keep them from all sorts of parasites that would end up invading their body and hurt, hurt their health and end up taking their lives. And the shepherd would take the sheep and dunk it in this vat. And the sheep would struggle and it would bring its, you know, its nose up above the water and the shepherd would push it back down and again and again. And Elizabeth Elliot said, I wonder what it would feel like to think my shepherd is trying to kill me when he's actually trying to save my life. And then she said, oh, I know. (laughs) The perplexity of the test. Now, here's what I want you to see. God is calling Abram to trust him with every aspect of his life. Uh, Maybe a working definition of faith would just be to trust. To trust God when it makes sense, to trust God when it doesn't make sense. And here's what I'd say. Uh, People come to me often and say, look, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. I can't believe I'm actually saying those words out loud. But I need to know before I become a Christian, do I need to give up this or do I need to give up that? Do I need to start doing this or do I need to start doing that? I need to know now before I start this journey of following him. In other words, I won't become a Christian unless you can tell me I can do this or I can do that. And part of the witness of Genesis, Abram, if he was here, would tell you, look, God continually says, go to a land that I will show you. He doesn't give you a map. He doesn't make any promises about what it's going to look like. He promises to be with you along the way. God is continually saying, what I want is a commitment to follow me, to trust me no matter what. Now, here's the thing. You will never trust him when it gets confusing, when you can't see around the corner, when it seems costly. You and I will never trust him unless you can see he's not only useful, but he's beautiful. He's not only powerful, but he's also good. That he actually has your best interests and the interests of this world at the core of his being. In fact, he loves you more than you even love yourself. And this is where we see the story unfold through Abraham's response to the test. See, um, notice how the narrative slows down in verse six. See, verses one through five go pretty quickly. So God comes to Abram, says, go, says, do this. They get on the donkey, they go. Three days later, all these other things happen. And then in verse six, the whole narrative just slows down. Abram took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Even there, just pointing out this little bit of tenderness, this bit of care that Abraham takes the dangerous stuff, the fire and the knife, up the mountain. And the two went on together, and Isaac said to his father, the wood and the fire are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? In fact, this is the only place in the Bible where we hear Abraham and Isaac talking together. And he says, where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. What compels Abraham up that mountain? It's not I need to do this or God will kill me. It's not I need to do this or I'm going to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God. It's not someone has to die to placate this deity. What compels Abraham up the mountain in all of his confusion, in all his frustration, in all his fear and trembling? God will provide. God will do it. God will see to it. In fact, that word provide in verse nine in Hebrew means to see to it or to see. So in other words, he's saying, my son, you cannot see the lamb. I cannot see the lamb, but God will see to the lamb. I don't see all the turns, but I know that I can trust God on this road and where it's going. That's what's getting him up the mountain. It's not I can do it, I must do it, I will do it. It's God will do it. God will provide The name of the mountain is not on this mountain God will be obeyed. It's on this mountain God will provide. In Hebrews chapter 11, later on, reflecting on this, an early church leader says, By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to offer up his only son, of whom he had been told, it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. He considered the fact that God is able to even raise someone from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. One commentator opened my eyes to what might have been going on in Abraham's mind here as he says, Abraham reasoned that no matter what, God would fulfill his promises, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. No matter what, God will fulfill his promises. You can trust him. Which leads us to the fulfillment of the test. See, we read as it goes on, and in the thicket, there's a ram caught by its horn. God ends up providing a ram, which is a picture of the gospel. Elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Chronicles tells us that the hills around Jerusalem were actually known as the mountains of Moriah. That Jerusalem itself, the, the temple where God would meet with God's people, that Jesus was crucified outside the city on a hill, and all of this was in the very land called God Will provide. Because later, God will provide the ultimate ram, the ultimate sacrifice. Abram does not need to lift his hand against his son, because God will see to it that he sends his only son to take the brokenness of this entire world upon himself. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul writes to the early church, he who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give everything Else with us. And we read in the early in the Gospel of John, when Jesus comes on the scene and he's walking through the temple courts, and John says, to, About Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God has provided a lamb. God has provided a way out. I wonder if Abraham could be at the foot of the cross when Jesus is being crucified. I wonder if he would take the words in verse 12 and turn them around and say to God, Now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your own son from me and from this world. Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain is a picture of the price that the father and son paid at Calvary. If you want to know if he cares about you and about this world, you look at Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and you say, he did all that for me. He did all that for this world. He was not manipulated into it. His arm was not twisted to do it. He did it gladly for the sake of this world. Let that melt your heart. When you see the pain of your own life, look to the cross and to his resurrection. When it feels like a dead end, look to the promise of the resurrection that says he's making new things out of even seemingly dead ends that every tear will be wiped from every eye, and every injustice will be done away with. And allow that to infiltrate your soul, to melt your heart. Allow that to compel you to him, to trust him. Allow that to propel you outward, to be an agent of that kind of renewal. You can trust him. You can trust him when it's clear. You can trust him when it's foggy and you can't see forward. Uh, I'll conclude with a story, true story, of Mother Teresa. She, at her uh, house of the dead and dying in Calcutta, she had this really successful cardiologist who came out to volunteer his services to hopefully heal some people. So he came out there and he said, Mother Teresa, I'm this experienced doctor. This is my credential and all this. And she said, your job for the time you're here is to go to the house of the dead and the dying and hold people as they die. Look them in the eyes and tell them they're beloved so they will not die alone. They'll die with dignity. So he did that. He was transformed. And as he's coming back to the States, she said, how can I pray for you as you're back on your way? And he said, Mother Teresa, would you please pray for us? We have a lot of uh, decisions to make at the hospital, a lot of big opportunities. There's a lot in the balance. Would you please pray for clarity? And Mother Teresa said to this man, you Americans are always asking God for clarity. I will not pray for clarity for you. I will pray for enough trust and enough hope and enough faith that you will follow him even when it's unclear. Follow him not because you can see where it's going. Follow him because he's trustworthy. Let's pray together. Gracious God, even now, we still do tremble as Soren Kierkegaard did when we read this story. Uh, We just barely scratched the surface, but hopefully we began to get toward the core of what this is all about, that you are a God of peace, that you are a God of justice, you're a God of mercy, you're a God who gives your own life on our behalf so that we do not take anyone else's lives. In a world of violence, even in our lives of violence, whether it's violent actions or violent thoughts, the things we do to others and the things that we do to ourselves, the things that are done to us, we need that kind of peace that would go up the mountain for us. And as Abram took Isaac and laid him on the wood on the mountain, help us to see, Jesus, that you are the true son who was laid on the wood of the cross in the same mountains that Isaac's life was spared, that our life is spared because you gave your life. And so help us to enter in even now as you were put outside so that we could be brought in, as you were rejected so that we might be welcomed, as you were put to death so that we might be brought to life. Help us to see that you are not only useful, but you are beautiful. You are not only powerful, but you are good. And help us to surrender our lives more and more to you, even now in your name, amen.